Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. My first time in chatting with the Naked Scientist this morning. Chris Smith is back with us this week. And like I've said, the lines are open to you. So give us a call right now and pose your uh, science questions. Uh, He, of course, joins us to strip down science to its bare essentials. Makes us understand things a lot better, doesn't he? And uh, fantastic to listen to. So we're privileged to have a chat with him this morning. Uh, Chris, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hello. I suppose you are also hoping that England get through to the final and uh, that hopefully uh, <laughs> along the way they will beat the Proteas against, uh, again in this World Cup. Well, you right? never know your luck, do you? <laughs> Listen, now, what are we grappling with this morning, first of all, as, as, as far as uh, the naked scientist, uh, scientist is concerned? Well, there's a few good, interesting stories that have emerged this week. One of them, just at the top of my list, is a really interesting one on melanoma. Uh, skin cancer, which the rates of which have gone up about 100% in the last 10 to 15 years amongst largely people with pale and pasty skin like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, it's one of the most dismal outcomes for cancer because um, when you catch or ha- when you develop melanoma, the risk of dying after about five years is about 95%. So the survival statistics are not high if you have an advanced melanoma at diagnosis. So... scientists are trying to find ways to solve the problem. And there's a lovely paper published this week. It's by a guy called Craig Seol, who's at Harvard in America. He's got a paper in Nature. And they've actually used fish to find out one of the genetic causes of melanoma happening. And you might think, why are they using fish? But they're using a species of fish called zebrafish. These are the tiny little stripy fish that that's why they're called zebrafish that you find in aquariums and tanks. But they're very easy to work with. And the black stripes and spots they have on the fish are caused by melanocytes, the same cells that we have that make our skin coloured and which can become cancerous. And what they've done is to genetically manipulate the fish, putting in many of the same genetic changes that you see in humans who have melanoma to try to find out what genes make the tumours occur. And they've found a couple of them. And so it's amazing to think that 3,000 little fish have helped these scientists home in on a major gene of significant importance in triggering melanoma, a gene that previously hadn't been associated with melanoma and therefore will lead to us being able to understand some of the molecular clockwork and therefore maybe come up with some new drugs to treat the problem with. Absolutely fascinating. At this point, of course, want to remind you, Chris is a medical doctor and scientist employed as a specialist registrar and clinical lecturer in virology at uh, Cambridge University. Chris, I've, I've got to ask you uh, a question from my side, man. We, we, we see what's happened in Japan. We, we heard about the earthquake in Myanmar yesterday, the two of uh, seven magnitude. Is there a causal link between earthquakes across the globe? 
Well, earthquakes are happening all the time. And if you look at the various websites, there's the US Geological Survey, for example, there's the British Geological Survey. Those geological monitoring stations that those organisations have set up are continuously listening to the earth and picking up the vibrations that happen when an earthquake happens somewhere. And they are logging earthquakes happening all the time. So every day there are many, many earthquakes, but most of them are inconsequential. We never get to know about them, and many of them happen under the sea or they happen in funny places where people don't live, so we just don't know about them. So earthquakes are very, very common. The ones we pay attention to are the ones that happen where we are and are big and therefore have consequences and a human impact. So I don't think that there's any major connection between all these clusters of events we're seeing at the moment. It's just bad luck. And because humans tend to spot coincidence, we're attributing significance to something where there might not be any. Mm. It's not true to say that earthquakes can't trigger other earthquakes because if you have an earthquake in one area, then the vibrations from that earthquake can travel through the earth and can cause other faults where there is energy stored to go and there's definitely an association there so aftershocks and things like that can happen but mm. I don't think there's any gross connection between what we've seen happening with the weather in Australia and then the quake in Haiti and quakes mm. in Myanmar and, and various places I think it's just bad luck unfortunately Alright, get your questions in to uh, The Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567 I'd love to hear from you uh, On the SMS line, Vincent wants to know uh, Chris where do sounds go to? Do sounds go and stay on the air? Is it possible to retrieve some? Oh, lovely question. Um, sound is not like light. So if I emit some light, light is an electromagnetic wave, say I shine a laser beam into space, that laser light will continue into space forever. The light will spread out a tiny bit. Laser is very good at not spreading out, but it will still nonetheless spread out a little bit, and therefore the intensity of the light will decay by an inverse square law. In other words, it's 1 over the distance squared. So that, what that means is if you double the distance, then the amount left behind at the end of that is a quarter of the intensity. Light behaves like that, goes on forever. Sound is totally different. Sound is a compression wave. What that means is that you've, if you imagine a long slinky spring, the kind of thing that kids play with, mm. if you squeeze a bit of that spring and let it go, you'll see that the, all the different furls of the spring squash into each other and then ping apart all the way along the spring from one end to the other. That's what a sound wave does. So when sound enters the air, it's compression of some air molecules which all push into the ones next door and push into the ones next door and the sound is carried and propagated until it hits your eardrum which makes your eardrum go in and out and then your eardrum tells your inner ear, your cochlea and uh, that makes brain waves out of sound waves. But the energy which is being transmitted is always being dissipated. So there's some loss. So the molecules being made to move backwards and forwards are always losing a little bit of energy. It's spreading out. So sound waves eventually just fade into the background and disappear. So once the sound has gone, it's gone and you can't get it back. It's a very interesting question for you on the SMS line, but I'm going to save that for a little while later. Let's go to John in Roseback. John, good morning. Hi there. Yes, sir. What I'd like to know is... When one looks at the moon, for instance, especially earlier this week when the moon was closer to, to the Earth, why does it look perfectly round? I'll listen on the radio. All right. Nice one. John, thank you for the question. Hi, John. Well, the, the moon looks round because it's a nice big ball. 
um, it's not as big a ball as the Earth is. And, of course, if you were to zoom in close, you'd see that the Earth is not a perfect round ball. It's got lumpy, bumpy bits, we call them mountains, and it's got lower bits where the seas are. But from far away, the relative sizes of those things pales into insignificance, and it looks like a ball. I think that is essentially the same as with the Moon. You've got all these holes on the surface where the Moon has been bombarded by craters, but because the size of those craters relative to the size of the Moon as a whole, once you come back far enough and start looking at it from far enough away, it looks like a smooth contour. Um, I, I think that's basically what John's asking. I hope that's a good enough answer. If it's not, come back to me, John, and I'll, I'll have another go. Makes sense to me, and I'm sure he'll get back in touch with us. Let's go back to Ronnie now. Ronnie, how's your sound travelling now? I can hear you. I can hear you perfectly. <laughs> well, we can hear you as well. What's your question for the Naked Scientist? I've asked the scientist uh, this question before, but we get cut off each time, so I can't follow up with the question. Okay. So I'll ask the whole question immediately, and that is, you know, uh, life is carbon-based, and the scientist has said that there isn't any other kind of life on Earth that isn't carbon-based. But I always thought that salamanders were silicon-based. Is that correct or is that incorrect? Hello, Ronnie. Um, well, I'm glad you got your question in at last, and I will attempt to answer it for you. I'm not an expert on salamanders, but to my knowledge, given that they are reptiles, the close relatives of other reptiles on Earth, and other reptiles that have come and evolved since salamanders, and the reptiles that evolved before salamanders and now have living relatives still alive on Earth, in other words, ancestors that have, that have come down, descendants that have come down and still here, they all use the same sorts of life-giving uh, processes and chemical processes that we do, and for those reasons, no, I don't think salamanders use silicon. Um, there is an interesting spin-off of what you're saying, though, because in the last six, six to nine months or so, you may remember there was the publication from Arizona in America looking at a lake which was very rich in arsenic, and the scientists there were showing that certain bacteria harvested from this lake, if grown in a, a medium that was very rich in the chemical arsenic, they could substitute arsenic for, for phosphorus. Potassium. Phosphorus, yes. not potassium, phosphorus. And this well, is really key that's because the, phosphorus... That's what I found you originally. Yes. And, uh, but the thing is, I've looked it up on Google before, uh, since then, the, 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 the salamander thing, and there are definitely articles uh, about um, um, silicon uh, being a replacement for carbon. And uh, I, I couldn't make it out exactly, but I think it's worth having a look at because I heard about this years and years and years ago. And... Um, and, uh, you know, silicon is the same as carbon in, the, in that sort of thing, except on a different level. And uh, it's just like an accident sometimes of uh, development that the one is used. And I think that, that, that there might be some silicon development, some silicon animals that have developed. Okay. Well, Ronnie, look into it, Ronnie, because you're quite right that silicon is in the same group of the, of the periodic table as carbon. So it's in group four, which means it likes to make four bonds to other things. So chemically, it's quite similar to carbon. Um, but at the same time, it is chemically sufficiently different that usually we use carbon, not silicon, because it's a bigger atom, so it's going to be harder to fiddle around with. But I will certainly look into salamanders and silicon, because I hadn't come across that. sounds fascinating, and I'll try and come back to you with an answer. Nice one, Ronnie. Thanks so Thank much you. for the question. Thank you. Thank you. Bye -bye. Chad, Chad, I'm so glad you eventually got that question off your chest. Let's go to Edward in Durbanville. Edward, good morning. Good morning, guys. Yes, Maybe sir. an easy question or a silly question, but what causes the moon to come closer and move further away from the Earth? It should be staying in gravity. It should stay the same, more or less the same distance from us. Oh, hi, but actually, um, the, the moon doesn't go around the Earth perfectly in a circle, is the first point. And second, the moon isn't staying in the same place. When it first formed, 
it's about four and a half billion years old, actually. It was the product of a huge collision between the Earth and another planet, which was about the size of Mars. We call that Thea. Um, no one was there to see it, obviously, but we've got evidence that there was this giant collision. And this ejected loads of material from the Earth's surface up into space around the Earth, and over time that coalesced to make our moon, and that's why the moon is so big. But because the Earth has water and the moon makes tides, the moon's gravity is pulling water on the Earth towards itself all the time. That's why we have high tides and low tides. And because the Earth is spinning, the water is moving around with the Earth, and therefore the moon is feeling a pull from the Earth's surface because of all this water it's moving around. So the, the Earth is actually giving some of its energy to the moon, and the moon is speeding up on its orbit. And what this is doing is meaning that the moon is able to move slightly further away from the Earth's surface all the time. So if you measure the position of the moon this year, and then you compare it next year, you'll see that it's moved a couple of centimetres further away from the Earth than it was pre previously. And the, so the moon used to be a lot closer to the Earth's surface and is steadily moving away. So if you wait a billion years or so, eventually we'll get to the point where you don't actually have tides anymore because we won't have a moon that we can see because it'll be so far away that you won't actually have the gravitational impact that, that it's having today. And we know this is true because if you go back millions of years into the past, there are fossilised tide lines on the Earth, in some rock formations, you can see the heights of tides. And the Earth used to have very high tides because the moon was much closer and was pulling water much more strongly than it does today. Nice one. Edward, thanks for the question. Uh, one from the SMS line now, Chris. It says, Hi, Chris. If I can smell tobacco smoke from around a corner or insecticide that has been sprayed onto the floor days before, is it going into my lungs? That's from Mads. Yeah. Um, the way we smell things is that when... A chemical is produced by something, it goes into the air, there will be lots of molecules of that chemical bobbing around in the air. When they reach your nose, when you breathe in, you carry with the air you're breathing in some of those particles up your nose, and at the bridge of your nose, if basically where you put your glasses at the top there, is a thing called the respiratory or olfactory epithelium. And on this olfactory epithelium are lots of little sprays of nerve endings. And those nerve endings are decorated with chemical docking stations. We call them receptors. And there will be specific receptors which recognise certain shaped molecules. So when the smoke goes up your nose, then it docks with the right collection of nerve fibres and those nerve fibres fire off activity into the brain and the brain decodes that pattern of nerve activity and says, right, we've got one of those, one of those and one of those, that must be cigarette smoke. And it works out what, what is going in. So therefore, in order to experience a smell, you do have to breathe it in but some smells are extremely volatile, extremely pungent, and they stop you breathing them in as soon as you smell them. Um, that doesn't mean that all of those particles have gone into your lungs, but it's likely that many do because there'll be dispersed in the air and so when you breathe in to take a lungful of air you'll, you'll pull in many of these particles but some things do like ammonia smell so horrible the minute you start to experience them you go ooh and stop breathing and then you sort of run away and try and try and get clear of the air the bad smells normally tend to linger uh, let's go to mark in scarborough mark good morning hi uh, hi chris um yeah my question is um it would appear that people who are slightly older mm -hmm. tend to you get you get asked a question and you know the answer but you can't recall it, so you tend to forget about it, yeah. and then either five minutes later or even two days later, which happened to me when the Springboks won the World Cup, um, suddenly the answer appears in your brain or in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 
what is the rationale behind that? Mark, I, I want to tell you, though, I don't think it's something exclusive to older people, as you put it, because okay. uh, <laughs> those questions come and go, and the answers inevitably uh, take a little while longer, I suppose. But uh, any explanation for that, Chris? Hello, Mark. I have the same problem, um, and the evidence is that if you do have one of these experiences, you shouldn't dwell on trying to find the answer, because okay. if your brain is eluding you with the answer, what's happened is that the system of connections, which would normally link the I know I know this, and now I will go and get the piece of information and I'll get it from the following bit of my brain, the connections between those have been misrooted somehow, and so the address for that piece of information is wrong, and you're recruiting the wrong sorts of memories, or you're, you're trying to retrieve a memory that you can't quite get to. If you dwell on that, what you actually are doing is cognitively rehearsing the broken pathway, and therefore you're reinforcing or strengthening the wrong connections, not the right ones to the answer. Now, what probably happens when you stop thinking about the thing that you couldn't quite remember you nonetheless still think about it without realising it. It goes into your subconscious and your brain continues to rehearse whatever experience it had that it was trying to re retrieve information for. And when it restores that connection, then you get that little light bulb moment and go, oh, I know what that was. And then hopefully the connection gets strengthened. You might think that's the case, but it's not true, unfortunately. There was this <laughs> lovely study. It got done by a couple of ladies in Canada, and they were interested in tip-of-the-tongue experiences, which is kind of similar to what you're saying. So we've all had this. If I show you a picture of something which is a word that's not in common parlance or it's something that you, you may recognise but you won't remember immediately the word, you may have a tip-of-the-tongue. It's when you go, oh, I know that. It's a... Um, mm -hmm. Oh, it's a, it's a... Well, they got a whole load of pictures and showed them to students. And every time the students had a tip-of-the-tongue experience like that, uh, they asked them to press a button saying, I'm now having a tip-of-the-tongue experience. And they then made them wait a variable amount of time before putting them out of their misery and telling them what the word was that they couldn't find. And when they told them, the students were so relieved, they went, oh, oh yes, of course I knew that. <laughs> they then repeated the experiment the next day. What you'd think would happen is that when people were put out of their misery, having been made to sweat for 30 seconds or a minute or so, they would be so ashamed of having not been able to think of that word, they would never forget it again, which is what we all think. Yeah. What they actually found was that the vast majority of the time, if you made people ruminate and think about the thing they couldn't remember for a long time, they were much more likely to forget it again. Because the, what they were doing by ruminating on the thing they couldn't remember was, as I said, rehearsing the broken pathway of connections in the brain, not rehearsing the, connect one, the correct one. And their advice is if you can't remember something immediately, either look it up on the internet or ask a friend straight away so you don't rehearse the wrong pathway or forget about it. And exactly as um, Mark is saying, you will get that information back from your subconscious because your brain will continue to work on this problem it couldn't solve before and then it will retrieve it for you later. Chris, as you mentioned that, now I remember my, my primary school teacher specifically many years ago used to tell us, listen, if you're going to study, make sure you put it in your long-term memory and not just your short-term memory. Was this just a way for, for, for them to say, stop uh, sort of SWAT studying and, and study the full volume of work? Is there that <laughs> distinction? Um, there is, actually. They, they did have a point. And we know that when you first put something into your brain, it's in a sort of temporary store and is then translated and can 
consolidated in long-term memory. And this process takes six to eight hours and seems to be further reinforced by sleeping. Um, there was a, a very nice study that was published recently where they were looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is where people have a very catastrophic event happens and afterwards they report visual flashbacks and nasty memories that keep intruding onto their thoughts of what happened to them. So what they did was to show people some pretty violent movies to make them have these flashback type post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms mm. and then they randomly either asked them to play Tetris which is a visual computer game or to do a quiz which was just yeah. words and they then asked the people to keep a diary of how many flashbacks they had to the unpleasant movies they'd seen the people who did Tetris Almost none of them had any flashbacks. The people who did the quiz game had twice as many flashbacks. The people wow. who did nothing had equivalent numbers of flashbacks because the visual memory was getting translated over the next six to eight hours after it happened into their long-term memory, and the Tetris, which is visual, interfered and distracted them from that consolidation process. Wow. Whereas the word game, because it was words, had nothing to do with hor horrific visuals, therefore it didn't interfere, and the people still consolidated the unpleasant memories. So there is this consolidation period which takes six to eight hours, and like I say, if you go to sleep, you consolidate memory much better. So when I have to give talks and presentations and, and talk about um, science stories and things, I always do them the night before I'm going to talk about them, because I wake up in the morning and, and my brain has done something to the information in that I, I can marshal it much more readily. Very interesting. Erasmus in Canal Walk. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, sir. Thanks for holding on. What's your question? I take six chronic prescribed drugs per day. I want to know how do those drugs know where to go within my body? Great question. Uh, Erasmus, um, the answer is that... There's a number of reasons why these drugs might work. You don't say what the drugs are, but uh, let's just talk generically for a second. So when you take a drug, what that drug is, is a molecule which has a very defined shape. So in your body, different pathways, different chemical reactions are happening, and they are carried out by different enzymes and proteins and other structures that have themselves a very defined shape. So the drugs are selected so that they will interact specifically with those particular targets. So they'll float around the body in the bloodstream, moving into the tissues, and wherever there is the structure that they are the right shape to fit with, it's rather like a glove. You've got hands floating around in your bloodstream and they're looking for gloves to insert themselves into. The drugs will bind onto those receptors and they will influence whatever that biochemical system is. A slightly different variation on that theme is if you've got pain and you take a painkiller, people often say, well, how does the painkiller know where my headache is so it goes and deals with it? And the reason is that what the painkillers are doing is attacking or blocking a pathway in inflammation that makes the pain happen. So in other words, you put the drug into your body, it goes into all your tissues, but only where it hurts do you then make chemicals which would make you aware of the fact there's something painful going on and the painkiller stops you making those chemicals. It'll stop you making the chemicals everywhere, but because that includes the place that hurts, it makes the pain go away. Let's just get Helen in Plumstead and Francisco in the Kells River quickly. Uh, Helen, good morning. What is your question? Good morning. My question is, uh, the astronauts, when they uh, landed on the moon, was the surfaces of the moon as they expected it to be? All right. Okay. Simple enough. Let's go to Francisco in Thank Kells you. River quickly to get the last of the questions. Francisco, good morning. Good morning. How are you? 
Very well. What's your right. question? My question is, uh, yeah, if we can ever ask the question what happened before the Big Bang, because according to Simon Singh, who is the author of a very brilliant book, The Big Bang, um, he states that it's, uh, it's, it's really a, a, an unfair question to ask because time actually came into existence uh, at the point of the Big Bang or at the, uh, at the event of the Big Bang. So I just wanted to know that. Okay, Francisco, thank you very much for your question. Uh, Chris, maybe let's just start off with Helene quickly. Is there, there any uh, sort of body of material to, to say whether uh, the surface of the moon met with the expectations of the astronauts? Well, people did have some clue as to what the lunar surface would be like from various bits of evidence. I mean, one, we could look at the moon. Two, we knew vaguely what the moon was made of by looking at the light and other analyses of the moon's surface. And also, there are bits of moon that have landed on Earth from um, craters that were thrown up on the moon, ejected material, and their meteors uh, rained down, turning into meteorites on the Earth's surface. So we did have some samples of moon surface, so we knew vaguely what it was made of. It wasn't made of cheese, uh, reassuringly. <laughs> um, uh, they, they also knew that the conditions would be harsh because the moon is so small it's not going to have an atmosphere um, or an appreciable one and therefore it's going to have very intense on the sunlit side exposure to the sun and you also need to compensate for the fact that there's nothing to breathe and the surface is quite dusty and that dust is nasty stuff so they, need, they knew they had to protect against that so they had some idea but obviously it was a crucial mission to go there and bring those samples home because it gave us a much greater insight into the processes that fashioned the moon and what sorts of resources and minerals it has uh, because if people ever want to build a base they need to know what they're going to have to work with what the, the raw materials will be looking at francesco's question about the big bang um simon singh lovely guy um i've actually interviewed simon singh got a couple of his books and big bang you're right it's a very good book um yes he he does say that but then in the last few years there's been a very important mission called the planck mission which has been launched this went up i think it's a year and a half ago and planck is going to start studying it's a it's a radio telescope project and it's going to start studying the polarization of light from the big bang so when the big bang occurred there was a big inflation and expansion of the universe and for some reason there were inhomogeneities in other words things weren't evenly distributed and they began to coalesce from this smooth state into lumpy bits which formed galaxies and stars and all this kind of stuff and one of the things that that is written into the radiation which still exists from those events happening is a polarization so the light is skewed or bent in one particular orientation and by studying that it might give us some clues as to what was actually going on when the big bang happened and that in turn might inform what went before the big bang but the Planck mission hasn't reported yet um, the first light and the first analyses from that I think are due to report either next year or the year after. So we're all waiting with bated breath to see what the initial results are, um, but nothing has been forthcoming yet because the scientists are getting all the data. I have lunch occasionally with one of the scientists who is analysing this data. It's very yeah. exciting, but he doesn't give anything away. So I will tell him, Francesco, you want the answer and I'll, I will pick his brains and see if he, he, will, he will tell me anything. I, I, I'm dying to hear that report. Back in the meantime, I suppose, we can go uh, to uh, the final question for this morning, one via the SMS line, uh, and, and it touches base with what we've just been talking about over the last few minutes, but Anonymous wants to know, uh, Dr. Chris, what is the naked scientist's opinion of the link between science and God? Well, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, actually, um, because 
the science is not about um, disproving or proving whether God exists. Science is about asking the right question um, mm. and trying to find out how the world around us works. And if God created the world and God equipped human beings with the brain uh, that God did, then God must have known that human beings will become inquisitive and curious and want to explore their worlds. And God equipped them with science in order to ask those questions. But I don't think that the existence of science and a scientific explanation in any way undermines whether or not God exists. We know that the universe began to exist about 13.7 billion years ago. That's when the Big Bang happened. Mm. And therefore, you could view it that that was the moment of creation. Um, but it's up to individuals, I think. And I, I don't think that the science we do at the moment here on Earth is going to inform whether God exists. I think the science we're doing here on Earth and looking out into space is informing our understanding of our cosmic neighbourhood and the planet we inhabit and how to make it a better place and keep it a nice place yeah. to live in. And I don't necessarily think that, 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 that religion and science have to be the, this sort of mutually exclusive thing that many people view they are. I think it's what, whatever floats your boat. And I know that religion makes many people very happy and makes them spiritually fulfilled. And they can also be scientists at the same time. And, and I don't want to deny them that. Is there space for something like biblical evolution? Now, that's when it does get tricky. Um, do I think that we ought to have, and I'm glad you asked that question, because do I think we ought to have the teaching of religious education in a science class? And, of course, by this I mean, should we be teaching creative and intelligent design in classrooms? The answer is absolutely no. In the same reason that if I walked into a religious education class and said, right, we're going to screw up this Bible business and we're just going to talk about um, how science is, is, uh, is done and why this Bible story is totally unscientific because there's no evidence for it or anything like that, people would be horrified and they would be mortified and we don't do that so why should we do that to a science lesson I, I don't think that there is an appropriate use of that type of thing and I, I don't think the two should should overlap I think we know what we've got evidence for we know that evolution is what makes the world the way it is and the reason we're here is because of evolution this is not a creation story and so I don't think the two should be mixed up Chris Smith, thank you so much for this morning. Absolute pleasure. My first time out with you standing in Furidi. Uh, and, and I just want to share with you the good news. New Zealand are one wicket down with only five runs on the board. And it's Brendan McCullum, the big man, who we got out early this morning. Good luck in your match. Thank you very much. I shall be keeping my fingers and everything crossed. But thank you. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic. There we go. The Naked Scientist, of course, one of the most listened to and downloaded podcasts around the world, also has the show on BBC. And if you want more information on The Naked Scientist, you can visit their website at www.thenakedscientist.com.